Welcome to Superwomen. I'm with the incredible Dana Perino. I'm going to let her introduce herself, but just want to brag a little bit. Um, she is an American political commentator and author. She was the 24th White House press secretary, which I want to ask you so many questions about that experience, serving under President George W. Bush, and is also a political commentator for Fox News and so much more. So welcome to the podcast. I'm really honored to be here. I am a podcast enthusiast. Um, and I love what you do. Uh, you're one of these women that people look at you and say, how does she do it all? But you do it with grace and you're so generous with your time. So thank you so much. Of course. So let's start somewhat in the beginning. Did you know that politics was an arena that you wanted to enter from a young age? I think so. Um, I, so I was born in Wyoming, grew up in Wyoming and Colorado. My family still ranches in Wyoming in the Black Hills. My grandfather was a county commissioner, so I kind of had a little bit of an early taste of politics. You know, the, the, the first piece of mentoring advice that I remember ever getting was from my grandfather, and it was that um, if you, when you go to an event, you accept the first drink that they offer you, and then you pour it in the first plant you can find. <laughs> I haven't actually utilized that advice, but when I was thinking about him the other day, I, re I remembered that. But the other reason I think I knew that news and politics was something I was going to be interested in early on is my dad started a tradition with me when I was in third grade. And he subscribed to every newspaper and magazine that was out there. We were a big news consuming family. And the tradition in, in the third grade was I had to find art two articles to discuss from the Rocky Mountain News or the Denver Post before dinner. And then when he got home from work, we would I remember you know, sitting at the dining room table or kitchen table, um, and he would ask me, like, which articles did I choose? And why did I choose them? And what did I think about that? And why did I think that? And had I thought about this perspective? Or what about another point of view, etc.? And there was one point when I was on Marine One with President Bush, and one of the skills I have, I'm a very good briefer, or I'm sure you've talked about managing up. I could explain something to a higher up, and in this case, the president, very succinctly with all the information and without tilting it one way or the other. Because as press secretary, you need everybody in the White House to trust that you're going to give them a fair shot uh, when you take something to the president. And I, ha I was do briefing the president and I flashed back to that time with my dad at the dining room table. And I'm so grateful that I had that experience because it really, one, fueled my love of news, but also gave me that opportunity to find a way to express myself and my opinions in front of you know, a dominant male figure in, in my life. In that case, it was my father. And then you know, fast forward, it was the president. The other thing I would point out is um, we had a little backyard and I had, you know, a swing set and I was in gymnastics as a kid and my dad had built me a balance beam that I had outside. And on Sunday nights, when it was nice outside, you know, they would want us to go out and play before dinner. But I was so afraid that I was going to miss 60 minutes. And those are the days before even VCR. So you couldn't record it that I wouldn't want to go play outside. So my mom and dad would set the alarm on the stovetop for five minutes to six so that when I heard the that alarm go off, I could then rush in and get my seat so I wouldn't miss 60 minutes. That sounds so nerdy, but that's how I was. 
I just love that your dad asked that of you. I feel like as a mom, I, I lose my bandwidth in trying to instill in my children what was instilled in me. And, and then I read an article about like the, vap- the vapidity of young people aspiring to just be famous on Instagram. And I'm like, how do, how do I do that? So I might be taking that lesson and tasking my eldest with at least reading an article and coming to dinner with a discussion because... I think it's a great idea. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things that people are longing for now, and COVID has kind of helped people have a little bit more family time than maybe they had before. Of course, sometimes that's not always good because kids aren't in school or in their sports, but that conversation around the dinner table where you can freely express your ideas and it really does help shape your abilities, but also, especially for women, it's important because the number one fear of all humans is public speaking. And you learn that from a very young age. And so the more you can get comfortable arguing persuasively and civilly with your family, the better you're going to do in the future when you try to persuade somebody, maybe the corporate board or a client or even constituents or voters in the future. Yeah, agreed. And I think that practice goes well for negotiating through any uncomfortable circumstances. So it's a, a for sure a great. I think but having two older brothers taught me that very quickly. <laughs> I bet. And probably a lot of other things. Yes. <laughs> so most people feel like their jobs come with a lot of pressure. You had probably extra pressure being that you were working with the president of the United States. How did you deal with that pressure? And how did you remain strong or, or maybe not? Maybe you cried in your pillow at night, but I'd love to hear how what, what you used. It's interesting, uh, looking back, I remember at the time, uh, towards the end, about I was there, let's see, I started in right after 9-11 at the Justice Department, then worked my way up um, into the White House in in 2003 and four, and then into the press office for the second uh, term. And I would always get asked by people, how do you stay so calm? And part of that was that I would always want to appear to be calm and in control and in charge. But one of the things I wrote about in my first book was that physically I was deteriorating just for a couple of examples. People might not even remember this, but back then when the Blackberries were first around and you had that keyboard and you would use it with your thumbs and it was a new motion for a lot of us. And my, at one point uh, towards the last six months of the administration, I had a complete numbness from my elbow through my thumb on my right, right arm. I developed a ringing in my ear in my right ear, it was constant to the point where, you know, I would look at my husband sometimes and say, can you hear that? (laughs) And nobody could hear it, but I heard it constantly. Even when I was sleeping, it would ring. Um, I had a very hard time sleeping. I was basically drinking caffeine all day long. I didn't eat much at all. I look back and I think, wow, that did not look healthy. And I went to the doctor uh, at at the White House that's available to you as staff. And he said, I promise you that all of this goes away in about six months after the administration ends. And it was all, he, he thought it was all stress related. And the, the numbness in my arm did go away. The ability to get to sleep, that took a while longer. The ringing in my ear lasted for a good 18 months later. And I look back on that and I realize I did not take good care of myself. So while everyone thought that I was calm and handled everything so well and that my transition out of the White House was so graceful. I I did not take good care of myself. I I take much better care of myself now. And I encourage people to do everything that they can because you are in charge of your health. Yeah. Nobody else can do that for you. 
I wish I had done a better job then. Um, that said, I wouldn't have changed a thing. I, I love the, I love the opportunity. I think one thing that was also very difficult is that was at the height of the war. And when the war on terror felt very much more present. Mm-hmm. So that, that was very difficult. But I'll tell you one thing that my husband and I did after the White House that I think helped what I say, return perspective with a capital P to my life. And that was that in the afternoon of Inauguration Day, my husband and I flew and we were on a six-week trip and we spent two weeks on a vacation safari type, um, even visiting wine country in South Africa. And then we spent two weeks volunteering together at a PEPFAR site, and that was the HIV AIDS program that President Bush had put in place. And we did that every day for two weeks. And I worked in the on the women's ward of the hospice in the afternoon. I worked with the children of the patients. We worked in the food kitchen. And we just sort of let go of ourselves and our egos and got perspective with a capital P. And I just find that that's one of the best ways for me to remain full of gratitude and for to stay grounded. And again, that perspective is really key when you have big jobs, great opportunities, so many great things happening in your life, and you might feel really busy. And then you go and you realize just how much you have compared to others and how important it is to help others so that you can stay grounded. I think that's a huge part of a lot of people's success is the ability to stay grounded. And you do that so seamlessly when you give back to others. And we, you know, whether it's a personal project of mine that I never talk about or, or all the charitable work we do that, that is talked about with the brand, I think that, that knowing that your world is bad as it could be or as stressful as it could be, there's people who are far less able to have that, what, what we even complain about frankly, and to be able to give back is always, I feel incredibly valuable, both for both parties. So I think that's incredible. In your book, I love the title, Everything Will Be Okay, Life Lessons for Young Women from a Former Young Woman. (laughs) So I very clearly remember, you know, 16, life is falling apart, hormonal, and my almost sister-in-law would be like, it's fine, it doesn't matter. And it was so not real to me until you look back, you're like, I can't believe that. Well, you know, that's all that I had to deal with. How do you talk differently to young women? Because I feel like it's like when someone's trying to tell you to break up with the bad guy and you just can't do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I, I was saying today that I, I used to, well, I still have this one method that when you are filled with worries, that one of my pieces of advice is to write all your worries down on a piece of paper and then make two columns next to that. And in the first column, you mark anything that you have control over. And the second column, you mark what you don't have control over. And then anything that you have control over, then you have a decision to make. What's your plan to do something about it? And if you don't have a plan to do something about it, you know, if you decide not to do something, that's also a decision and that's, that's good, but that can help take that anxiety down a notch. Like once you get it on paper and you're looking at it, because one of the things I find when young women come to see me is they'll ask for 15 minutes of my time. I usually know what they want. It's usually mentoring advice. They're either looking for how to get promoted or get a raise or maybe move from one industry to the next. Or perhaps they're having a hard time on their team and they don't understand what the roadblock is. And I find when they come in, I'm sure you've heard this, Rebecca, they speak in one long run-on sentence without ever taking a breath. And they're so filled with anxiety that when I finally get a chance to break in and say, okay, let's 
take this one by one. And you, I actually, sometimes I will say to them, I want you to take three deep breaths right now before we keep talking. And I'll sit there and wait until they do it. Maybe I'll even breathe with them. I remember one woman was so distraught. I can't even remember really what it was. When it's your problem, you think that it's the biggest thing. And I understand that I have a lot of empathy for it. I also see that so many of these young women are extremely hungry for advice. They are doing better than they think. They are ambitious in every great way. And they're hungry. They, They want a plan. They want you to give them a plan. So the most important thing that I feel like I can do for them is to have them not worry about the plan so much, to let go a little bit, and to remember that life is filled with so many twists and turns and opportunities and be ready to take those opportunities. And I also think that right now, because women are doing very well in many places across the workforce, um, starting new businesses, I mean, obviously you highlight that a lot. And women are supporting each other to some extent. We could could be doing more. That they won life's great lottery by being born in America, having an education, and then getting a decision to make, which is how hard do you want to work and what do you want to do? But I kind of beg them to not worry their young lives away. I feel like I worried most of my 20s away, part of my 30s as well. And you don't get that time back. You definitely don't. And then you look back at what you were worried about, and it seems like small potatoes. Yep. You've really mastered the art of evolving, you know, from working as the first female press secretary to being an incredibly talented anchor and author. What advice do you have for keeping that evolution going, knowing when it's time to change? You know, for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm not anxious to do something different. But I recently had an experience that um, helped me with this. Let me let me rewind a moment. Um, I actually was the second woman press secretary, the first in a Republican administration. Dee Dee Myers paved the way for uh, women in the Bill Clinton administration. She was press secretary for a while, and we've remained good friends. And when you work in an administration, there's an end date. Like if your boss doesn't win re-election, or if you finish a second term. You have to leave at noon on January 20th. You do not have a choice. So in some ways for me, have, you know, being forced to change was not as difficult as having those feelings of maybe it's time for me to try something different. I'm a little burnt out or I'm a little bored. I want to do something new. Now, that changed a little bit for me recently. I had been doing a show called The Daily Briefing with Dana Perino at 2 p.m. every day. And then a 5 p.m. show called The Five that I do with some co-hosts. It's a really fun show. And at that, The Five has been on for nearly 10 years now. So I think, wow, 10 years. I've never done anything for 10 years. And I was doing the daily briefing show. I felt like I had a really good routine. And I get a call from the executives sort of right before Christmas time. And they said, we have an idea. I was like, oh, I love ideas. Now, I had no idea that they were going to suggest that I move from the two o'clock show to do the nine to 11 a.m. show and co-anchor it with a really wonderful professional uh, journalist here named Bill Hemmer. And, but I would also still be doing the five at 5 p.m. And my initial instinct was, I can't do that. My schedule would be too hard. Like, but there was another part of me that was very excited about the opportunity. And what I've learned about myself and that I would advise people to do is your initial instinct of, I can't, it won't work, it's too hard, 
I don't live in New York. I live in DC. I can't do is to set that aside for a moment and to trust that other part of your instinct, which is, Ooh, that sounds exciting. I learned this from my husband. Actually, when I first got asked to move to New York to do the five, I called my husband and I was quite upset about the idea of leaving our home in DC and moving to New York. And this is going to be terrible. And Peter said, let me stop you right there. Congratulations. This is what you always wanted to do. And leave the move to me. And I tell you, Rebecca, that moment really opened my eyes to thinking, wow, I thought that I had a handle on this mentoring thing. And I was actually putting up barriers even for myself as an adult. So right now, I've just had another big change and I'm adjusting. And I feel like the waterline is right at my chin. <laughs> and I'm not drowning but I feel like I could any moment if I don't you know, keep paddling pretty furiously, but I'm very, very happy. I feel like it's, I, I don't want to ca- call it a sickness, but I too feel like I'm drowning, but then I keep turning the faucet on because I don't want to say no to those opportunities. I, yep. I feel grateful that I have an incredible team who, you know, obviously could not do this without. I, I sometimes go, is that the entrepreneur in us that we just, it's never enough? And what, and I don't even know what the end goal is, right? I'm just like, it never is enough. And it's not about money. I'm not saying money's never enough, but I don't even know if I keep finding myself and maybe you feel this way. Like I get to where I think I always wanted to be. And then that's not good enough for me. That's absolutely how I feel too. And one of the things I write about in the book is serenity and finding serenity. Um, I read a quote. I wish I could remember who said it but it was like kind of a a guru in business. And he would say to people, if if they called him to say, hey, I got this great new opportunity. And he would say, I'm happy for you, but I'm not going to congratulate you until you tell me something that you gave up so that you can do this great new opportunity. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's a great point. And in fact, just before we did this call, I got a request to be on a nonprofit board that is working on unity and diversity and oh, it sounds so great and so fun. And I know I have zero time to devote to it. And I did a, I did something I have a hard time doing. I said, thank you so much for thinking of me. I'm not able to do this. And I didn't provide more of an explanation, right? To explain all the reasons why I'm so busy and I can't do it. I just said, I'm sorry, I'm unavailable to do it. And then I pressed send and it was kind of hard to do, but it's also empowering. It's, it's freeing when you can figure out a way to just do it once. But it is hard. I mean, every call that I get, sometimes I think that's the last call I'm ever going to get. Yeah. It's like, you're always like, is this the end? Is that, is that going to be it? <laughs> and it's never the end. <laughs> right. What lessons have you learned being in a space which is predominantly male, whether it is at the White House or in the news? Um, what have you learned as a woman and strengths have you tapped into to, to lead? So it's interesting. I was thinking about like my White House days. We, at least in the West Wing, it was very female dominated, at least for, for us, for, for a lot of it. But there were certainly times when I'd go to the meetings, especially in the Situation Room, uh, where I might be the only woman there. Uh, Condoleezza Rice was a wonderful mentor of mine. I remember one time being in the Situation Room and one of the generals, he said, we have a communications problem in Baghdad. And Condi and I met eyes. She was across the table from me. And she nodded just subtly towards me. 
And I knew she was saying, you better speak up. Here's your shot. And you can do this. I'm here to help you. Because it's kind of intimidating to talk to a four-star general. And I basically said, we have a communications problem in, our, in Baghdad. No, we have a fact problem in Baghdad. If we fix the facts, the communications will get fixed as well. And I have to say that if you do it once, and you do it in a way that you feel is dignified and gracious, but you make your point, and you do it with facts on your side, and you come very prepared in the room, he agreed with me. And I never thought that was going to happen. And when we left the situation room, we were walking out, and Connie and I were walking out, and when the generals um, were behind us, and we turned a corner, she um, nudged me with her elbow, and she said, I'm proud of you. And I think one of the things that we have to do as women who care about other young women coming up through the workplace is it's really imperative that we pass on how to get that start. I find if you give people a little bit of a start and a little bit of encouragement that after a while, it's like you can take the training wheels off and and they're off on their own. I'm very proud of some of the young women that I see that used to work for me at the White House or they were here at Fox News. And I see now that they're one young woman. She's now in the executive suite at one of a big publicly traded company. And Five, six years ago, she never would have thought that was possible. And now she's such a valued employee at this company. And it's thrilling for me. So I think that the more you offer mentoring and advice and really invest in people, it comes back to help you as well. Yeah. I feel like I'm part of this culture, but uh, I feel like it's happening mostly by younger and younger women, this cancel culture, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's political divide, right, which I feel like has never been greater, or, you know, you did one thing wrong, you know, or whatever, we've seen it where it's, it's rightful to be canceled. Obviously, if you know, someone has uh, done horrific things. But, you know, I was talking with a friend, and she has a list of over 90 women leaders, CEOs that have been canceled. Whereas men, let's just say have uh, made mistakes, they get back up, they get to go back out there. And the sad part about all these women, these 90 women that have been canceled just in the last, I'd say, two years, is that they were all canceled by other women. Mm. So do you have any thoughts around how young people can sort of get rid of that culture of like, okay, you made one mistake, you're, you're done? This is the most interesting and difficult and troublesome problem of our time. I haven't seen that list that you talk of, but I would very much like to see it because I'd like to try to help if I can. A lot of times you'll see, especially with men, they don't apologize. Right. Um, and I'm not saying that women shouldn't apologize. Maybe there's time for a, an apology and that that's appropriate. But this idea that people should not be allowed to work. I find that as every day as I get older, I find I'm just looking for a little grace. Uh, you know, grace and mercy. That's really critical. I also feel that women have a, sp- a special responsibility and a leadership role to be the natural one defender of people who need uh, a helping hand or say that it's a friend of yours that is going through getting canceled and, or maybe it's not even a great friend. You should always call the people in your life, even if you're not really good friends with them, call them on their worst day. I actually learned this from President Bush. Towards the end of the White House days, there were these two reporters from AP and Reuters named uh, Steve Holland and Terry Hunt. They had been at the White House forever. So I think they'd covered Clinton and then all the years of Bush. And I granted them an opportunity to come and interview the president for an exit interview in the Oval Office. And at the end of the interview, the tape recorders were turned off and they kept chatting. And one of them asked how often he saw Bill Clinton 
in the White House or how often you talk to him. And President Bush said, actually, Bill Clinton and I are very good friends. We, we saw each other a lot. And they said, well, we didn't know about that. He said, well, I didn't put out a press release, but if he came out to see his wife, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, uh, I'd invite him over for lunch and we'd catch up. And of course, he's good friends with my dad. And he goes, you know, he said, you know, I always called Bill Clinton on the days when nobody else would call him. And he talked about this one time during the 2008 primary that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were fighting it out in South Carolina. And there was an accusation made from the Obama camp, not Obama himself, uh, Obama camp about Bill Clinton, suggesting that Bill Clinton was a racist, which is one of the hardest things that you can hear about yourself if somebody's saying that, especially when it's not true, obviously. So President Bush said, you know, I called him on that day. And Bill Clinton told me he's like one of the only people that called him. So I think that one of the things to do, aside from sticking up for people in your workplace, is don't be afraid to pick up the phone and reach out to somebody who might be going through a really tough time because it is so isolating when you are the one that basically is getting canceled. Again, showing mercy and grace to people, you can never go wrong with that. Totally. We need a lot more of that right now, I would say. So where can people buy the book? Well, hopefully if there are independent bookstores in their area, I'm a big fan of them. But then your usual places, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Um, I would say it's a quick read. One of the things that's been so gratifying is some young women around Fox had a chance to have an early look at it. And almost all of them have come back saying, how did you know exactly what I was thinking? And I, one of the things I think that young women and maybe even us, not so young women anymore, Sometimes we think we're all alone in our thoughts and our worries. Uh, this quarter-life crisis that most young women go through, they think that, that they're the only ones with those feelings. And it's just not true. Almost all the young women that I talk to are all dealing with kind of similar things, that the dreams that they had and the plans that they had in their minds when they were in their teens and early 20s, by the time they're mid-20s, the late 20s, they realize, oh gosh, none of that is turning out to be true. And they start to kind of re-question everything and, and kind of panic a little bit. And the great thing is about life is there's all these twists and turns. And the key is how can you become resilient? And the more resilient you can be, the more you're, one, going to succeed in your career, but you're also going to be able to enjoy the gift of life that you have. Again, I just hope that, that, that the book helps people figure out a way to not worry so much. There's so much joy to be had in life and you have to make good personal decisions and take personal responsibility and be disciplined in your life. But there's a lot of joy to be had and I'm hoping that this will help a little bit. I know what your next career is going to be. It's going to be a motivational speaker because I can <laughs> listen to you all day. Well, thank you so much. I, well, hopefully um, I would love to get to meet you in person one day after COVID. Thank you for what you're doing to try to get the word out to women because we do have similar thoughts, but we all have different approaches and collectively we can all really help each other. A hundred percent. I think people don't realize how much, how much within their network or just people, you know, six, six degrees from them can drastically change each other's lives. Absolutely. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you my final two questions, which I ask all my guests. What is one piece of advice that you either learned from someone that actually paid off and, you know, was helpful? or something you learned over the years that you'd love to pass on? Oh my gosh. Okay. It's not career related. Kind of. Fine. It doesn't have to be. Okay. I met my husband on an airplane. I was 25 years old. I was flying from Denver to Chicago, Chicago, DC. I'd been um, working for a congressman and I was 
had been back in Denver doing some work and I'm heading back to Washington. I'm assigned seats next to a guy that sits, uh, that's asked if he can put my bag up above for me. I'm only five feet tall, so I declined and um, I didn't have a Rebecca Minkoff bag. I had just had my backpack and I, I use that as a footrest <laughs> when I'm on a plane because my feet don't usually reach the floor. But when he said, could he put his bag up above? I looked and I did this quick scan that single women can do. I'm like, wow, no wedding ring, great looking guy. And he is British with an accent. And he sat down and he was reading The Tailor of Panama by John le Carre. And I'm a big fan of fiction. And so I just struck up a conversation, asked him about the book. And well, two hours later, I called it Love at First Flight. And there was this bit of a whirlwind romance, but he's 18 years older than me. He lived in England. There's a million reasons why we should never be together. And the idea was that I would move to England to be with him, but that meant leaving my career, which was really starting to take off in Washington. And I struggled and struggled. And I thought, what are people going to think about me that I was leaving this career to go be with a guy who's been divorced twice? He's 18 years older than me. He lives in England. Like This is insane. And I was so consumed with what other people were going to think about me and this decision that a family friend, she since passed away, but she pulled me aside at Christmas that year. And she said, do not give up on this opportunity to be loved. She said, it might not happen again. Yep. She said, you need to choose to allow yourself to be loved. And it, it's almost like she gave me like the keys to the kingdom. And I moved to England. We got married two months later. I've, we've been together 23 years. He's all throughout this book because there's some great Peter stories in there. But I would say my favorite piece of advice is um, don't give up on the chance to be loved. That's great. I love that. I think also so much time is wasted worrying what other people think of the relationship that's for the two people in it, you know? So much so. Like I was so scared to tell my parents I was moving to England to live with this guy. We, we, we were not even engaged yet. And I honestly wanted, I almost asked Peter to do it for me because I was so scared to tell my parents. And he correctly said, I'm not, I'm not able to do that for you. And then when I finally got up the courage, I remember this like it was yesterday. It was a Sunday night. I always called my parents on Sunday night and I called and I got up the courage to tell them. And you know what they said? They said, congratulations. This is wonderful. He's perfect for you. This is, and I spent weeks just racked with worry for nothing. Yeah. All right. My next and final question for you is what is one thing we'd be surprised to know about you? It could be a habit. It could be a fear. Oh, well, it's actually kind of fun. Way back when, if you wanted to be in television, you had to start in radio. So in college, I worked overnights as a country music DJ. And I was there for the beginnings of Garth Brooks and all that great 1990s country. That's right up my alley. Oh, that's phenomenal. I love that. All right. Well, next time I'm uh, needing a good playlist, I'm hitting you up for some country. Okay. I'll, I'll be happy to. Well, thank you, Dana. Okay, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to head over to RebeccaMinkoff.com. Show your love and support for the brand. Buy something for yourself. Buy something for another. And also don't forget to try my new fragrance. Again, it is available at all Nordstrom, Macy's, Scentbirds, and Birch Boxes, as well as our site. Hey, listeners. I'm so excited. That my new book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success, comes out on June 15th, and there are just a few days left to pre-order my book. 
You're going to get a credit from me at RebeccaMinkoff.com when you pre-order. You're going to get the first half of the book digitally, and you're going to get an incredible masterclass from me. So I need you to stop everything you're doing, order the book, and look great in your Rebecca Minkoff goods while you're reading about how you are going to achieve success yourself. Check out more in the show notes for details.